Beginners, a podcast on foundational Buddhist teachings and techniques to use in your everyday life. This podcast is a production of Kunzang Payal Choling, a Buddhist center in the Payal lineage of the Nyingma School of Tibetan Buddhism. For more teachings, meditations, and resources, you can visit our online virtual temple at tara.org. That's T-A-R-A dot org. Jetsama takes us to a deeper understanding of the interdependence of the practices of refuge and bodhicitta, leading us through the mental equations that will result in the cessation of suffering, she points out, the cessation of suffering does not come when everything external gets all right. The answer to the question, how in the world am I going to fix this, is you're not in the world. We have to move beyond the realm of psychic existence to get to the answer. In a less than perfect world, we decide to reach for something perfect that we can't see yet. Only then can we bring comfort to others. What I would like to talk about today has more to do, not more to do, but I would say has as much to do with the practice of bodhicitta, which is taking the vow of compassion and committing oneself to live one's life as a compassionate person as a, as, and to moving into uh, adopting the posture and becoming a bodhisattva. That is an awakening being who benefits others, who lives to benefit others. Generally speaking, uh, in the refuge practice, refuge and bodhicitta are considered to be almost like twins. Uh, many times, practitioners will structure their practice so that they're accumulating refuge and bodhicitta at the same time. You'll notice that the two sections in your Mundro book are side by side, and that one easily follows the other. And uh, to help you with understanding how to live through the muscular changes that you are going through, even as we speak, um, one thing that you can do that, is, that I did that is very helpful is that when you're practicing the uh, refuge, and you've established the visualization, you're halfway there to the bodhicitta, right? Because it moves directly into the practice of bodhicitta using pretty much the same visualization. So you're kind of halfway there. If you are accumulating prostration, and either you are in retreat or you are simply upholding your daily practice commitment, there will be times when you really feel that you cannot in a physical way, you simply cannot do the, uh, you cannot put up with the, the, um, the uh, challenge of the, of the practice. And uh, each one of you will have a certain limit that you can consistently do in terms of prostrations on a regular basis. Uh, if you were to do a daily practice commitment of 100 prostrations or 200 prostrations or 300 prostrations, whatever it is, there will be some days that for whatever physiological reason you may not be able to do that as much. Or it may be that you're trying to, let's say you're moving from 100 prostrations to 200 prostrations and the body is stressed as it's going to this new level. The one thing that you can do is you can combine the practice of refuge in bodhicitta and you can practice the refuge accumulating prostrations until you can feel that you are tired and need to move on to something else or take a break. 
then you can sit down and visualize and meditate on the bodhicitta section of the practice. So you can take a break, accumulate bodhicitta vow for a while, and, and you use that visualization. And if that's the only time you're going to, achieve, to accumulate bodhicitta, you can close the practice at that point. And I'm sure Ani Lucia will elaborate, for those of you who are retreating, she will elaborate on this for you. But you can uh, close the practice of bodhicitta somewhat and then come back and go back to the refuge practice. Or you can actually go back and forth. And Lucia can show you how to do that, how to go back and forth. So that you're, part of the time that you're doing your practice, you are accumulating refuge and prostration. And the other part, you are accumulating the bodhicitta and you go back. And interestingly, they're so connected in one's mind and should be so connected in one mind, one's mind that that's actually an excellent way to practice. And I recommend, rather than doing only prostration, to go back and forth and, and on a regular basis accumulate the bodhicitta at the same time. Now, the reason why this is very useful is that the idea of refuge and bodhicitta in in concept, are so well-connected and so interdependent. Literally, it's hard to understand one without the other. Yesterday, during the retreat, we talked about the meaning of refuge. We talked about the thoughts that turn the mind. Uh, we talked about the um, uh, pitfalls and conditions of samsaric or cyclic existence, the cycle of birth and death. So we talked about many different subjects. How does... How do these subjects connect with bodhicitta, and how does bodhicitta connect with these subjects? <coughs> Excuse me. It is considered actually the two main legs of our entire path are wisdom and compassion. Knowledge of emptiness or the realization of the primordial wisdom state and the bodhicitta. These two are as inseparable as the rays of the sun are from the sun. That the sun, you know, if one were to examine the sun, one would understand that, yes, there seems to be a place where the sun's actual body ends, but are, is, is the energy of the sun's rays, is that emanation form of the sun actually, in truth, separate from the sun itself? Some would say no. And so, in many ways, refuge and bodhicitta have the same kind of relationship. When we are considering, for instance, the thoughts that turn the mind, we do consider the teachings on the six realms. We do consider the false of of existence. We consider teachings on cause and effect. We consider teachings on impermanence. But also we consider teachings on compassion, and they start with and are absolutely related with the, those teachings that you have just had on the six realms of cyclic existence and the faults of cyclic existence. Uh, the idea of, of, of compassion of bodhicitta is intimately related to that, and the way that they, that they are related is like that, is like this, that when one is actually considering to enter onto the path or considering to um, make one's relationship with the path much more firm and make that solid and or deepen, if one is a, is a more advanced practitioner, to deepen on the path, one always has to go back and re-examine the faults of cyclic existence. And one of the main thoughts that we have concerning the faults of cyclic existence is that we look around and we see the Buddha's first teaching in action. We see that all sentient beings wish to be happy, that we all have that in common, that we all wish to be happy. It is our motivating force. 
whatever it is that we're doing, whatever form it takes. Underneath that is the wish to be happy. Now, each one of us has delusions. Each one of us has habitual tendencies. But underneath all of them is the wish to be happy. And one way to understand this and to really broaden the perspective on that is that in some cases, is to examine that in some cases, it's very easy to see that a person is striving to be happy. Uh, you might see one person, one particular type of personality, for instance, um, using every skill that they have to maintain happiness and joyfulness and equilibrium and that sort of thing. Uh, maybe they, they go to psychotherapy in order to clear out neuroses. Or maybe they do a lot of affirmations, you know, positive thought, thinking and affirmations about themselves in order to try to be happy. And, and for the people like that, who are trying to maintain a certain kind of, um, of energy in their personality, it's very obvious that they're trying to be happy. You can mark that and see it very easily. But what about somebody like a criminal? What about someone who is a committed criminal? I mean, a serious criminal. Somebody who has done something unthinkable, such as even a serial killer. I don't mean the, somebody that kills Cheerios. I mean, <laughs> kills people in a row. So anyway, a serial killer. Let's say somebody like that. You would think that a serial killer is... I mean, we can't even understand what, it, what the mind of a serial killer would be like. They're filled with obsession, filled with compulsion, filled with hatred. Uh, in many, many cases, they are... Um, psychologically incapable of empathizing with other human beings. It's like they have a microchip missing. They're all kinds of messed up. All kinds of messed up. And to, and to many of us, their thinking, their world, may not even be recognizable. It may not have even the same landmarks. And, and internally, certainly, if we could go into their minds, it would not be recognizable as any kind of internal reality that we've ever experienced. So they would seem very different from us. But there is one factor that we have in common with somebody like that. And that is that we are both equally, in our own way, trying to be happy. Believe it or not, this person who commits uh, perhaps such a horrendous crime and does so repeatedly and is compelled to continue doing so, if we were to really go within and try to slice and dice enough to find out what what moves this person? What is happening here? We would find out that maybe there'd be a lot of jungle to go through. I mean, I'm sure that that's the case. There's a lot of entanglement in there and a lot of confusion, mental confusion. However, underlying the dynamo that drives this engine is that this person wishes to be happy and in that way is completely the same as you. Completely the same as you. Now, I'm not recommending that because of that, we should be nice and pat them on the head and let all the serial killers out on the street. I'm not saying that. I realize that this, this issue is far more complicated than I am presenting it. But the fact that I'm mentioning does not change, no matter how complicated the situation is. And that is that this person has something in common with you that is very strong. And it is what drives both of you. You wish to be happy. Interestingly, neither one of you really knows how to be happy until... As a mature practitioner, you have really contemplated and studied the Buddhist teachings and learned something about that and then maybe had enough life experience 
in terms of maturity, to, learn, to, to go within and approach oneself honestly, to look at one and examine one, one's habitual tendencies. These are the kinds of skills that we learn as life skills and skills that we learn on the path in order to help us to begin to develop the skill of learning what comprises happiness, what actually makes it up, and how to produce it. But until that happens, we are the same as anyone else. All sentient beings are exactly the same in that way. Maybe not in too many other ways, you know, but in that way, we are exactly the same. And this is true of all the beings on all the realms of cyclic existence, not only on the human realm. So if we broaden our perspective, we look out from our own self-absorption into our immediate environment, which is generally pretty easy for most of us. We have friends and relatives that we don't mind kind of increasing our space to include, and, and we look at them and we consider them part of our lives. But let's move out and see all the rest of humankind. They are all in the same way as we are, striving to be happy. And then look out beyond that to the animal realm. Even though these animals don't have a forehead, even though these animals cannot conceptualize in the same way that we do, still each one of them in their own way is trying to be happy according to their capacity. The predator is trying to be happy when it, when it chases its prey. The prey is trying to be happy when it fixes itself or creates for itself a safe env environment and develops for itself coping mechanisms with the reality that the predator is always out there. There are many different ways to view this, but we can see if we really study that we all have that in common. And so we become one, in a sense, one family with a fundamental genetic code, in a sense. Even across species, even across the form and formless realms, we become one family with this particular underlying reality in common. Now, if that were to happen, if we were to really contemplate this issue in this way, we might come up with a new world view. Wouldn't that be wonderful? We might come up with a new, more universal perspective. Wouldn't that be delightful? If we could use that tool as a way to end self-absorption and to really open our eyes and look at everything around us with a new kind of vision, a new kind of empathy, a new kind of understanding, a new kind of willingness to put oneself in the place of others, a new kind of Sort of planetary human, you know, aware of life around itself, a new kind of cosmic perspective, a new understanding as to what life is all about. Now, how does this relate to refuge? Well, as we are turning our minds towards Dharma, turning our minds, that means softening them, preparing them fertilizing them, plowing the field, so that the mind is turned toward the path that leads to liberation and, not, and renounced of what does not lead to liberation. Where does the idea of bodhicitta actually come into play? Actually, it comes into play as both a motivator and as a clarifier. <clears throat> as a motivator, we understand that Part of the process of turning the mind towards dharma is to, tr is to truly look at the six realms of cyclic existence and all the conditions and situations of sentient beings. 
And having done that, we see that cyclic existence is faulted, and that these sentient beings, although they do wish to be happy, have no understanding of the causes of happiness. That's the main difference between, let's say, a Dharma practitioner and the, the serial killer. The Dharma practitioner wants to be happy just like the serial killer, but they are engaging in method. Method means we're looking at cause and effect relationships. We see the faults, we look at cause and effect relationships, and we are trying to work it out where we produce the causes that allot the desired effects. Now, the serial killer is also trying to do that. He perhaps feels some kind of need build up in him, and then he goes and tries to satisfy that need. So in his way, this serial killer is doing the same thing. He is engaged in trying to create the causes that produce happiness. The difference is he does not understand. There is such heavy delusion that there is no understanding of what causes produce happiness. So the serial killer is like, in a way, almost like a, a completely ignorant completely confused, completely uh, hatred-oriented basket of misconstrued ideas acting just in a knee-jerk way to get some kind of result, not able to think it through and having no guidance to think it through. So the serial killer is, yes, engaging in method, but what method? The serial killer is engaging in the method of hatred, is engaging in the method of destruction, is engaging in the method of harm doing, and doesn't understand, is thinking that that will bring some sort of power or happiness or relief in some way. And yet what, what, the, what this person doesn't understand is that the seed and the fruit cannot be unrelated. You cannot produce happiness from the fruit of hatred, destruction, ignorance, and harm doing, cannot produce happiness in the same way that, a, you know, a, a peach seed cannot produce a banana tree. So there is the main difference. But now we broaden our view and we look at it and we see that this is happening to a greater or lesser degree to all sentient beings. All sentient beings are striving to be happy. They wish to be happy. But in varying degrees, they do not understand the causes of happiness. We see this also in our own lives. See, we're the good guys. We're the Dharma practitioners. But even in our lives, we see that we engage in compulsive, neurotic, habitual tendency time and time again, cyclically, actually, and, and even though, and, and we've noticed this, and we talk about this, and we laugh about it, you know, girls get, women get together, we have girl talk, we know this one really well. And, and men are in the same situation. We repeat patterns that are non-productive. Is that a lightweight way to say it? We literally put ourselves through the lowest of the realms. We put ourselves through hell, literally. And we are not our own best friends. And we only see it when we are coming out the other side of the compulsion and it didn't bring us when we want, what we want. And then it's like, well, I knew that. You know? <laughs> Why didn't I say that? I knew that. How ridiculous. And then, you know, six months later, here we are, going down the pike again. 
So here we, in, a, in one way, that our compassion has increased because we see that uh, the serial killer is, bil- is busy bumping off everybody else in order to get happy, and we're busy bumping off ourselves to get happy. And, and the confusion and habitual tendency is there. It's there. So we have that in common. We look at it and we say, wow, if this is the case for myself and I am a Dharma practitioner, how much more so the case for those beings who have had no information, really, on what produces happiness? I mean, we, we are the children of a materialistic society. We were told that if you have two good cars, a chicken in your crock pot, and several more in your freezer, and, uh, you know, uh, a good husband or wife, good children, all these good things. Everything's been labeled what's good. You know, we already know what's good. And, um, you know, an ongoing prescription of Prozac that, <laughs> you know, that we could be happy. Occasional facelift. It gets more complicated as you get older. Do you notice that? <laughs> you know? I mean, at first it was like, just find the right man and, you, you know, you're home free. Now it's like, find the right man and make sure once you've got him, these things don't drop. You know, and it's beat gravity and beat the clock and all that other stuff. So, we, we are, in our own way, almost as clueless. We still engage in these funny things that we do, and every time that we do them, we think they're going to make us happy. And then we come out the other side of it with open eyes. Like, whoops, that didn't work. But, you know, we, we've noticed for ourselves how limited our capacity is to learn. Is that not the most astonishing thing? How really intelligent people cannot learn. Is there a button we're supposed to be pushing that we don't know about? I mean, where is the input button? We just don't know. So this is the condition of sentient beings. Now, I know, as you must know, how much I want to be happy. You know how much you want to be happy, right? I mean... Push comes to shove, you're pretty motivated by this, isn't it right? Of course you want to be happy. You'd be a maniac if you didn't want to be happy. Are you a maniac? <laughs> so, we're, so we want to be happy. I certainly want to be happy. And there are days, are there not, when the yearning to be happy and the feeling that you are very distant from that happiness is so strong that there's a lot of grief, isn't there? Like a lot of upheaval and grief, and, and, and there are times when it's just so difficult and so very far away. It, it, it's funny how that happens. Now, if we were to take that grief and that feeling and project it outward and think, here I am with all the understanding that I have about what makes happiness and all the skill that I have and all the intelligence that I have, and all the good fortune that I have that makes it possible for me to get a grip here and really see what's going on. And still I can't manage it. How much worse must be the condition of other sentient beings who are completely out to lunch about the subject? Like you think about the animal realm. They don't even have the capacity to take in the information about cause and effect and an extraordinarily limited capacity to learn cause and effect. I mean, you know, it's, it's like, have you ever watched a dog that has the habit of chasing cars? No matter what you do to them, they will chase the car. They almost, they're just far, they're terrified because they're almost as far away from getting killed and they, somehow they know it, but they can't learn. They can't learn that not chasing that car 
it's going to make them feel much more relaxed. <laughs> they simply can't learn that. So how much less is the capacity for other sentient beings to be free of that kind of suffering? Now we really look out and we really see that all around us is this terrible, terrible grief and suffering and disappointment that is masked in certain ways, covered in certain ways, is disguised, is transmuted, is rearranged, is redirected, is rerouted, is um, lied about. And yet, underneath it, there's that grief, there's that loneliness, there's that difficulty that we have in understanding what makes us happy and how to be happy. So this becomes then a causative factor when we engage upon the path. And it's one of the reasons why we practice refuge so sincerely. We use this idea not only as a practice in itself, but as a way to motivate ourselves. Literally, as practitioners, we should come to the point where we look around and we see for ourselves that all sentient beings are wandering in this confusion. And we develop a profound sense of compassion. It, it's just, if we really were to study and look around and empathize and see beyond ourselves how others are suffering even more than we are, that feeling would well up within our heart of great love and great compassion and, and just this feeling that enough is enough. Enough. There's been enough suffering in the world. It's just enough. And so by that compassion and that love, we become motivated. And the times that we are feeling undisciplined or feeling dry or off track on the path, we can rely on that love to come up and nurture us. You know, it's happened even on an ordinary level within our lives. We make a determination to take a more difficult route to accomplish something, even not so much concerning the path, but a difficult route to accomplish something in our lives. And then to accomplish that requires such a great Herculean effort like changing <laughs> um, that after a while, somewhere in the process, we lose focus. And we're asking ourselves, well, why am I doing this again? I really can't remember today. And then we, we look at someone else near us who is suffering terribly, just suffering terribly. And we vow to organize everything around us to, to make it better so that the person next to us is not going to suffer so much. We're motivated by that, and it brings us back into focus. Well, the same kind of situation happens on the path. We utilize the suffering of others, the understanding of that suffering, to center us, to motivate us, to keep us nourished on the path. And at the same time, and here's where the double blessing comes in, at the same time, we are also giving rise to the bodhicitta, which is the awakening mind, the mind that is, in its essence, the very display of compassion. Now, how, how then is the understanding of compassion also a clarifying thought as well as a motivating thought? How is it a clarifying thought? Now, here's where the profound connection with refuge comes into play. Not only does the compassion motivate us to take refuge, but it makes us think, think it through very clearly. If we utilize it, it does. One of the main teachings concerning the taking of refuge, 
that is officially entering onto the path of the Buddha Dharma and taking refuge in the outer refuge of Buddha Dharma Sangha, the inner refuge of Lama Yidam Khandro, and the secret refuge of the channels, winds, and fluids. When we actually enter into these, this refuge, which for, for our purposes now are the Buddha Dharma and Sangha triple gem refuge, we must define why it must be arranged the way it is. Why is it organized the way it is? For instance, if, if the understanding is that all sentient beings are suffering but they wish to be happy and they're mostly suffering due to desire and the confusion about issues concerning desire, that's true, if that's what the Buddha said, then why don't, well, it's kind of hard to figure out. Why don't we just, um, you know, kind of sit down and have uh, sort of an, a session, of, a therapeutic session of insight so that we can isolate for ourselves what it is that we actually want. And maybe then we can go and get it. If all sentient beings are really suffering, you know, and we're really unhappy and we're trying to be happy, why don't we just, like, have an, in, an insight of some, some kind and go, go for it? Why don't we do that? Well, because you've done that before. <laughs> you've done that before. You do it all the time, to greater or lesser degrees, according to your capacity and your habitual tendency. In fact, we do that all the time. We feel a need, we feel desire, we feel something. Something is moving that locomotive down the track. What is it? So we sort of sit down and we try to center ourselves, or we get busy and allow thoughts to come up. Each one of us has a characteristic way to deal with things. Maybe we'll do a little journaling, we'll do a little art, we'll do a little music, we'll do a little whatever. Take a walk and try to center ourselves and figure out what's going on. Well, we'll come up with something. You always come up with something. Now we're going to figure out, oh, I figured it out. If I don't get with the great love of my life, pretty soon, that's what it is. I know that's what it is. So now you're on to the next adventure. Or you may ask yourself, you know, what is it that's troubling me? What is it that's troubling me? And you sit down and you're reaching inside and using all this psychological technique and you're going, oh, it's my mother. (laughs) My mother didn't love me. <laughs> and, you know, each of these are... Ve- I mean, I'm not saying that these are not issues in your life. I'm not saying that these are not valid things to think about. But I am saying that there is some confusion there. In that you're looking at the superficial causes for discomfort, but not the deeper ones. More deeply, if we were to look, we would discover that the underlying cause of all suffering is desire, and that we're real, real, real confused about this whole issue. So, we examine the path and examine the teachings a little bit further, and we find that the Buddha has taught us that samsara is actually made up of things that potentially make us suffer. That is to say that the first step or connection with samsara, that is the wheel of death and rebirth, is based on the idea, the first sort of gossamer thin assumption or idea of self-nature as being inherently real. 
And as I explained yesterday, why does that happen? That happens because it can. End of subject. It's one of the potentials in the great ground of primordial nature which contains within it all potentials. And so this has happened. We have considered ourselves separate. In order to consider oneself as self-nature, separate, other has to be external. In order for other to be external, it has to be determined. In order for it to be determined, we have to react toward it. You know, there has to be a reaction. We either act toward it with um, acceptance or rejection. You cannot see something without registering acceptance or rejection. Or the combination of two, which is neutrality. It is not lack of reaction. It is a combination of reactions. So we cannot experience anything as outside ourselves without some sort of reaction. And we react toward everything, once that has happened, with hope and fear. So everything in samsara then is built from that original structure of the idea of self-nature being inherently real and this point at which one self is determined, other becomes external. We split into the subjective-objective reality. Everything in samsara, every kind of perception, in the senses, anything that we take in, our eyes, our ears, our tongues, you know, anything that senses, comes from, at the root, that original construct, that original assumption of self-nature as being inherently real. So everything in samsara is built of that. That is to say that nothing we experience now, nothing that we have ever experienced, is separate from the realm of desire then. So literally everything within samsara is potentially cause for more suffering. In order to understand what to do next, we have to understand the definition of the cessation of suffering. The cessation of suffering doesn't happen when everything external gets all right. Can you learn this? Can, can we all learn this, please? This, if we learn this, it, it would change your life. The solving of this problem occurs when we are able to cut off the causes of suffering at the root. And the causes of suffering have to do with desire and the experience of duality. So now we have to find a solution that is not anywhere in samsara. I mean, you know, the expression, how in the world am I going to fix this? Well, you're not in the world. Um, you know, where in the world is my solution? Guess what? Nowhere. Then we have to find something else. And what is that something else? Well, now we are looking to understand that desire then, and this original ideation, is the cause for all suffering. So the way to cut that would be to cut it off at the root. So we have to move beyond the realm of cyclic existence in order to get any satisfaction, in order to get an answer, in order to understand, literally, in order to prevent the causes from manifesting, in order to, to cut them off at the root.
We have to move outside of the realm of samsara. And so we look to see if everything we've known and experienced arises from the idea of such nature being inherently real, what is outside of samsara? Well, it is the one thing that as samsaric beings, we cannot perceive. And it is our own Buddha nature. The primordial wisdom nature that is the innately wakeful, sheer luminosity called Buddha. While we are revolving in the realm of duality, we cannot see this nature. And yet it is that very nature that is the cessation of the causes of suffering. The cessation of the causes of suffering. In order to cut off suffering at the root, one would have to cut off the connection, the potency of the desire realm. We, as we are here, as samsaric beings, are desire beings. We are motivated solely by desire. And yet the Buddha teaches us that this is the very cause for suffering. So what we're hearing here is that everything we know, everything we call me, every habitual tendency, everything that has come together to knit the tapestry of our lives, is of that cause for suffering. What monumental effort should happen in order to reach beyond that? How to even define what is beyond that? When, by definition, we are these samsaric beings whose first assumption is that of self-nature being inherently real. This is where the power and the majesty and the potency of the practice of refuge comes into play. Because when we look at the appearance of the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha in the world, and the inner and secret refuges as well, we can see that that which we call, what that which we call Buddha nature, that which we call Buddha, does not originate from the desire realm. It is that ground, uncontrived, innately wakeful luminosity that is the underlying primordial wisdom state, suchness, from which all display, all emanation actually come. So this that we are caught in and experiencing is simply some offshoot, some manifestation in a way. Whereas the fundamental, all-pervasive truth of our nature is to us unseen. And yet it is that nature, that which we are naturally, that which we must strive to, toward in order to be awakened onto, that that is the clue, that is the key. In our natural state as Buddha, as that sheer luminosity, 
There is no distinction, no distortion, no conceptualization, no idea that self is separate from other, no understanding that it could even occur that way, no distinction. Only suchness, one taste, that nature which is conditionless. See, as we are now, we cannot even imagine a conditionless state, a conditionless nature. And yet, this is our nature. And so when we practice refuge, we do it in stages. Now, the ultimate refuge is when we understand and awaken to our own faith, our own true nature. But in the beginning, we practice by conceptually isolating that which is without conception. Which we have to. <clears throat> On an ordinary level, let's say the goal was physical fitness and strength. Well, that's an abstract concept. How can you get that? How do you, you can't buy that. You can't hold it in your hand. But you can do the exercises, you see? Same thing. Buddhahood. We can't buy it. We can't hold it in our hand. But we can establish the method. And so the method begins with the recognition of the Buddha, which is the primordial, uncontrived nature that happens to have appeared in cyclic existence at this time, at, uh, during this aeon, as a man. But the man is not the thing. Lord Buddha is the display of that nature. We use his image and his teachings as a way to understand because he speaks directly from that nature. But we understand that we are awakening, awakening, awakening. And so that's the, the understanding of refuge. And so we're looking for that which is not composed of the causes of suffering. And here, while we are suffering and revolving endlessly and watching others revolve endlessly, here, while this occurs, we are that in truth which is the cessation of suffering. Buddhahood. So Buddha is that nature, which is our nature, which is not within the realm of desire, which is conditionless and free of dispersive thought, free of elaboration, free of structuring, free of contrivance of any kind. And it's only in the realm of contrivance which leads to desire that we are suffering, so we take refuge. In the Buddha, as that faith, that nature. In the Dharma, as the method, the spoken method that the Buddha laid out. The Dharma did not come from ordinary sentient beings. It did not, re not originate in cyclic existence. It originated with the Buddha's teaching. And only after the Buddha had achieved supreme realization, so that that Buddha nature was literally present under that tree where Lord Buddha himself meditated. That nature in emanation form had appeared. And then the path was delivered. So the path itself shows us method that results in something consistent with the seed or the original cause, which is Buddha. 
And the path shows us method which is consistent with that. And then we have the Sangha, which I have explained to you as the spiritual community such as ourselves, who become objects of refuge because they hold, like lineage holders, they hold and propagate the Dharma, keep it safe, and make it a real and viable reality in the world. And the Sangha is considered like the body of the Buddha, the activity of the Buddha, in a way. In order to clarify our relationship with refuge, in order to clarify our relationship with the three precious jewels, we must understand the faults of cyclic existence, the suffering of other sentient beings, our own suffering. We must know ourselves because it is only fair to, want to consider that our needs and the needs of others are the same and inseparable. You know, one cannot solve the needs of others without solving our own needs. And so we take refuge very sincerely. And we do so with that kind of clarification. Now, another question that is asked also concerns refuge, but it's more goal-oriented. Why enlightenment? Why is that the answer? I mean, in one way you'd think that that was obvious, but in another way it's a good question. Why is that the answer? Why isn't just living a good life and being a good person a good answer? Well, it's certainly an option, but there's no way that you can be a good person and live a good life in that ordinary way without meeting up with old age, sickness, and death, which are the three sufferings of human realm. There's no way that you can get past impermanence. There's no way that you can get past the ripening of karma, cause and effect. And you have no idea how your karma is going to ripen next week. Tomorrow. There's no way to know. We are caught up in that. Caught up in that simply trying to be happy. So now it is a clarifier. Apparently, it won't do just to be a good person and live a good life. I mean, that's certainly a way, and it's better than being a bad person and living a bad life. I mean, if those are your choices, definitely be a good person and live a good life. See ya. <laughs> but those aren't your only choices, and that's something we all have to look at. Now, there's, there are a lot of different ways that one can conceive of spirituality, that one can think of such things. Many people feel like, and this is a view that, that I've heard, you know, a number of times, feel like, well, it's not all about exiting the wheel of death and rebirth, cyclic existence. It's not all about enlightenment. It's about... Well, what are some of the options? Going to heaven. It's about salvation, going to heaven, to that place of joy, and waiting for everybody else to catch up or the world to end, or whatever it is that the particular scenario of, the, of a particular religion is. And there's the other idea that maybe, I don't know, what we should do is, instead of attaining enlightenment, that we should 
um, work to politically make the world a better place. Um, you know, the, the kind of uh, think locally, act globally perspective, which actually I agree with. I agree with that. I agree that we should think locally, uh, is that right? Think locally, act globally. Yeah, I, I actually I feel that that is a very important thing. I think that we should be alive, awake, and active. I think we should make the world a better place, but for that to be a religion that satisfies all of your needs, no, it's not enough. It's just not enough. It's only part of what we do. So, you know, we're asking ourselves, you know, why this dramatic thing? I mean, why do you actually have to really get enlightened? I mean, why do you, like, really have to become this miraculous bodhisattva being who, when they die, leaves miraculous signs and relics? And why, why, what, what, what's with this? Why do you have to go so high? Why can't you just, like, pray to come back in your next life as... I don't know, like a really good singer. You could be a really good singer, and then um, you could sing songs that make everybody happy, and la di da di da di da You know, or you could make the world a better place through music. That's the sound of music. We tried that, didn't we? And the hills are still alive. <laughs> so, we can try that, you know. And why not, why not do something like that? <clears throat> In order to understand how deep and how profound is the suffering of sentient beings, we have to open our eyes. We have to look. In order to put two and two together, we have to think. And we have to take responsibility for thought. That's our job. You know, it's not somebody else's job. Not my job to think for you. It's my job to think for me. And I'm having a hard enough time, thank you very much. <laughs> Do the rest for yourself. <laughs> so, we have to really think very deeply about these things. And if we really trace back, we understand that the cessation of suffering, the tools, the methods, the stuff we need to create the cessation of suffering is not in samsara. It is in our nature to which we are asleep at this time. And so the striving becomes so strong in us, you see. In order to benefit sentient beings, I've got to get to a level of wisdom where I'm not constantly creating these causes for more suffering. And then we examine one more teaching that the Buddha gave us. That in order to be truly effective at benefiting sentient beings, we have to liberate them. That means provide a method or a way or an opportunity by which they can practice in order to cut off the causes of suffering. They must be liberated. They must exit from sorrow. They must awaken to their nature. This we cannot help them with, we cannot do, until we ourselves have accomplished. And so why do we take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha? Why do we abandon cyclic existence? Why do we look toward the door of liberation as the only valid focus when we consider the needs of sentient beings? Because in no other form can we truly bring a solution. In no other form can a solution actually appear 
If it comes from the world, it will result in worldly things. If it comes from our nature, which is Buddha, it will result in Buddhahood or liberation. It's like two and two makes four. Work the sums. You've got to do this for yourself. Work the sums. You can't have an emotional experience or an aha and get this. You've got to work it out for yourself in your mind. Make the connections. And so as part of our entering onto the path, we practice this renunciation. We turn our face away from suffering. We look toward the door of liberation, and we do so for the sake of sentient beings. Of course you're motivated by your own pain. Of course you're motivated by your desire to be free. But when you look, you see that in the human realm alone, there is one of you and approximately five billion of the others. So yes, you are worthy, you are precious, you are important, but you are only one. Even more so should you be motivated to enter the door of liberation by viewing and really vibing with, empathizing with, embracing the needs and conditions of all motherly sentient beings, those who are like your kind mothers. The Buddha has taught us that we have incarnated so many times that everyone we meet and everyone we see has at one time been our own mother. Isn't that amazing? So we call them motherly sentient beings. Look around. Everyone you see. Including the serial killer and their victims. Including those that are hungry. Including those that are lonely. Including those that we are trying to manipulate into making us happy. They are our mothers, our kind mothers, motherly sentient beings who have brought us to this moment where we can practice for their sake. And so that kind of love and mature understanding of the condition of sentient beings becomes indistinguishable with the causes for practicing refuge and the clarification and understanding of refuge itself. You can't separate them. They are completely mingled. Each one of us has the opportunity to raise our life into a higher octave. We resist that opportunity terribly. Because it means for us a kind of isolation, we think. It means that we must identify ourselves as heroes, as bodhisattvas, as people with strength, as people with conviction, with learning, with care. People with care. In identifying ourselves in that way, we can't be the people that need, we think. We can't be the people that are trying to get all the time. And while I can tell you for a fact that it is not true that bodhisattvas have no needs, I will also tell you that I wouldn't give you a dime 
for a life that was not practiced on that higher octave. Because in that life you are a victim. You are at risk. You are terribly, terribly alone, more so than you could ever be if you lived a life of dedication, devotion, and love. Because your whole life is about taking, grabbing, manipulating, shaping, forming, boiling, sandblasting, cooking up something for you. Using nothing but poison as your soup. All the ingredients in your soup are bound and determined to give you only more suffering. Everything you're cooking up. And yet, if you are able to enter onto the path of abandoning cyclic existence for the sake of others, that higher road, that higher octave, yes, there is a change of habit. You have to change. You have to learn to orient yourself towards being supported by something different than what you're supported by now. And that's really scary. It's, it's scary. It's like, um, you know, glibly walking off a cliff into the abyss. It's really scary. You know you've got to change, and change is not something we're good at or comfortable with. Well, what are the options? As a sentient being, if you look around and see what's supporting you now, nothing. Nothing. It's all delusion. You could get sick at any moment. You could die at any moment. You could get poor at any moment. You could get ugly at any moment. These things happen. I'm not making it up. Read the paper. And you can't seem to find the nourishment you need. You just can't find it. Where is it? And so you're being asked to step up into something that you don't know, have no experience with, are completely unacclimated to. And you're asked to do it out of love. When you yourself don't know if you have enough. Well, guess what? That's where it comes from. Slowly, slowly, you will have enough. I don't know what form it will take. I don't know what form it's going to take for me. But I know that I have no choice. I have to live my life this way. Because I've already made the choice. And I've opened my eyes and I've seen the suffering of sentient beings and it is not acceptable to me. I have seen, pardon my French, the crap that sentient beings try to nourish themselves with. And, and if I think of them as my mothers and my children, it is not acceptable that my children are eating that. And I look around and I see that everything I can take and grab and touch in the world is disappointing and hurtful and hard, ultimately. Maybe all right for a while, but ultimately, it ends up to be nothing and worse. All we manage to do is increase our habit of grasping and more desire. So in a less than perfect world, I've decided to reach for something perfect that I can't see yet. Well, not in its entirety. I can see some of it. 
And for those of you beginning on the path, I'm asking you to do the same without saying anything at all. My goodness. You'll have to think this through for yourself. It's a dilemma at first. Until you look into your heart. Until you begin to work the sums. Until you hear the Buddhist teaching and check for yourself. The Buddha taught us that all sentient beings are suffering. That they are wandering in samsara, they are suffering, and they are suffering due to desire. And the Buddha teaches us that there is an end to suffering. And the cessation of suffering is called enlightenment. Therefore, in order to end my suffering, and in order to solve the needs and to benefit those who have hopes of me, and who are dependent upon me, I will practice Dharma. And I will take refuge, and I will abandon worldly concerns. And then I will bring into my life the causes for happiness. And I hope that you will too. So thank you very much for coming today. And I hope that this gives you something to chew on and think about. And I hope it helps you to get, have the courage to change. Believe me, I am not unaware how difficult, how heartbreakingly difficult deep change can be. And to solve the problems associated with habitual self-absorption is so difficult. To try to even address the issues of one own, one's own needs on top of the needs of others is so difficult. And there's no easy fix, you know, when somebody can't drop a little drop of golden nectar on the top of your head and the whole issue becomes a moot point and you're on the road. It doesn't like that. Each spiritual quest is deep and it's profound. And it has a dark night in there somewhere, you know? Spiritual transformation is like that. I speak from personal experience. There is a dark night in there that is it's no good way to move through it painlessly. But I'm telling you to come from a point of love, and you will produce love. The seed of love produces the result of love. Work the sums. You're sad because this is not a perfect place. And the answers are not here. And yet you are habituated to this place. And so in many ways, taking refuge is an act of courage, an act of valor. Doesn't always pay off immediately with shouts of hallelujah and joy. But eventually it does. Eventually it does. When you begin to see that your life has become transformed into something that is actually benefiting others. And because you exist in this world, 
Others are found finding comfort, a way out, a way to bring more love into their lives, clarity. And that's a, that's a good thing. That's when the happiness comes in. So I hope that you will consider these teachings very, very carefully. Adopt them into your life to the degree that you are able. Remember, everybody starts exactly where they are. Exactly where they are. And if you are capable of taking a big, giant leap, take it. And if you're capable of taking a baby step, take it. I'm happy to see you do anything you can do to make this world and your life a better place. So thank you very much. This podcast has been a production of Kunzang Payul Choling. For more teachings, meditations, and resources, you can visit our online virtual temple at tara.org. That's T-A-R-A dot org.